And we're exploring the book of Colossians in the New Testament, which has as one of its kind of key themes this idea of what it means practically to live in alignment with the truth of who God is and the truth of what his word declares. Mentioned last week that from its infancy, the church of Jesus Christ has had to deal with the potential that the truths we hold to can be incrementally eroded by other ideas that kind of circulate in the culture that we are immersed in. And so a good chunk of the New Testament letters that we read in our Bible are written to churches facing different challenges in their different locations, trying to figure out how to remain aligned to God and his truth while seeking to be salt and light for Jesus and sharing his love and his goodness with other people. I've shared previously about um, the, the cool little illustration about the training that's actually given to Canadian border guards so that they can effectively help to limit the flow of counterfeit American currency. Clearly, there's a fair amount of counterfeit currency which needs to kind of get in there um, to kind of circulate and stuff. And the Canadian border guards are one of the key um, parts in the puzzle of trying to stop that flow. The training given to these border guards to help them respond to this problem is not to focus on the skills and the techniques of the counterfeiters as much as it is to focus on becoming so familiar with what the authentic currency looks like so that whenever a counterfeit or a fraudulent copy comes in front of them, they're able to spot it pretty much immediately. And I love that thought of Again, as followers of Jesus, you know, there is value in understanding our culture. There is value, certainly, in being willing to engage with the different ideas that are prevalent in the society that we live in. But the most important thing that we can do is to just fall more and more in love with Jesus and live every day of our lives being so caught up in who he is and in what he's done for us, being so familiar with the reality of the truth that we have in Christ that whenever we kind of stumble across a different idea, we're able to recognize it as what it is because we're just so fixed on Jesus and on who he is. As we get through the book of Colossians, there's something uh, kind of similar to this approach that Paul, the author, does as he's beginning his letter. Last week, we focused in on the amazing prayer that Paul writes for the Colossians, revealing his heart and God's heart, that they know God's will in every situation, that they live lives worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way, that they bear fruit for God and grow in the knowledge of who he is, that they would be strengthened by God and joyful no matter what happens. But let's have a look at what Paul writes next. If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Um, we'll read from verse 15. If you haven't got one, that's okay. We'll put it up on the screens here. Paul writes, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Oh, that's a great passage of scripture. When I, I don't know about you, I read that, and part of me thinks, uh, I, I could picture Paul writing this thinking, hmm, how am I going to describe Jesus? And maybe he was thinking about that very methodically and very rationally, and maybe he was kind of writing this as, as something of a list. But then I, when I read over and over the words, and when you read it out loud, I don't know whether you notice that I begin to get a little bit excited about it. And I've changed my kind of perspective here. I don't think Paul was just methodically writing down some wonderful things about Jesus. I think he just starts to write about Jesus, and then he starts to get a little bit excited, and he just can't help himself by getting on this a bit of a rumble, and he just begins to describe more and more about how amazing Jesus is. See, I don't know how long you've been walking with Jesus, and I don't know how wonderful you know him to be right now, but can I suggest to you that he is more wonderful than any of us currently understand, that there is more to Jesus than we currently know, and there's repetition throughout this, words like, in all things, above all things, it's about the supremacy of Jesus above everything and anything else that we might ever come across in life. I love that sense of the Apostle Paul, this wonderful leader and church planter, just when he begins to think about Jesus, just getting excited. That's a good thing to be excited about Jesus. There's lots of other stuff that uh, people get excited about in life, but I kind of think as followers of Jesus, if he himself is not the number one thing that we get excited about, things are a bit out of whack in our lives, amen? Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Through him all things were created. Everything Everything holds together in him. He is everything. And I want to encourage you, wherever you're at in your journey with Jesus, there's always more. And there's always new things that he's wanting to help us understand so that our love for him and our devotion to him subsequently grows as well. Because what else would I want to do with my life but lay it all down before Jesus who laid down his life for me and who rose and who is continuing his purposes through you and I. That had nothing to do with my message. But it's all about Jesus. I really, um, I, I love the sense that in, uh, as he's kind of getting into the, the body of his letter, Paul is essentially uh, countering or speaking against this idea that was beginning to circulate amongst the young church in the city of Colossae. It was this idea that Jesus in himself is not enough. See, there are ideas circulating that maybe seemed harmless enough, but that Paul could recognize as dangerous because to go along with them was to accept and acknowledge that Jesus himself was not enough to satisfy the deepest longings and the needs of humanity and that other things kind of needed to be added into the mix. So the, the picture that's built up is that there were people um, presenting these different ideas within the church community, and they weren't coming out and labeling Jesus as a complete waste of time or saying that Jesus has nothing good to contribute, but they were kind of saying that as well as Jesus, you might want to consider this, that, or the other thing. And you know... This kind of got me thinking about the idea that often the most persuasive or seductive forms of false teaching 
are not those that offer something radically different and that requires completely abandoning what we previously believed. It's those that happily affirm what you already believe but suggest that you just need to add a little bit extra on top of that. Interesting, eh? There were four key characteristics of this teaching that was circulating in the church at the time that Paul was speaking against here. There were teachers who were presuming to be able to offer a spiritual fullness not previously experienced on the basis of faith in Jesus alone. Spiritual fullness. They presumed to offer a new degree of freedom for those who would follow them. They presumed to offer uh, entry into a deeper level of knowledge about God. And they claimed special insight into the powers of evil and offered special protection. So again, some of these people sharing these ideas may have been completely well-intentioned, going, hey, I, I, I want you to know what it is to be safe and secure in Jesus, so you just need to add this little bit extra onto it. But as I say, Paul recognizes it for what it is and says, no, if we accept these ideas by default, you're essentially saying that Jesus in himself is not enough. And that was an idea or a suggestion that Paul could not let slide. So what he does is that he's intentionally in these verses reminding them, pulling their minds and their hearts back to focus on who Jesus is on what Jesus has done for them and on what they possess in Christ to remind them that there's no need to look anywhere else. One of the things I was, uh, we're realizing about our boys in a couple of weeks, it's going to be Niall's 10th birthday and Conway's 6th, so um, our boys are becoming aware of the difference between a cheap knockoff and an authentic version of something. Yeah, sounds expensive. So uh, as an example, like the boys are kind of, they're into basketball and they've always been into soccer and stuff. So there's been this season of life where we've been able to get away with um, getting them a kind of cheap imitation version of a basketball singlet or a football jersey. And they've been happy enough with that. Like uh, Niall had a imitation Chicago Bulls singlet, which looks close enough to the real deal that satisfied him initially, but the other day he said, I said, oh, you haven't worn your Bulls singlet for a while. He said, it's not a real Chicago Bulls singlet. And unfortunately, the real ones cost uh, roughly $100 more than the cheap knockoff ones. So it's interesting. We're becoming aware of this in different ways. Basketball singlets, football jersey. Um, Crocs. Any croc wearers in the house today? Anyone wearing them right now? <laughs> This is, if you're not familiar, this is what a croc is. What a croc. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And uh, so there are, these, these are actually worth quite a lot of money, these, these things here. And uh, there are clearly separating, uh, uh, circulating, sorry, if you go to the warehouse or number one shoes, there are cheaper knockoff versions of these, which have become known as frocks, fake crocs, frocks, Cro crocs or frocks. Now, we've been able to get by largely with the boys in getting them frocks, because they kind of look like a croc, but now, like actually last year, Niall uh, outgrew his other ones, and so Bron took him shopping, and he definitively said, I don't want those fake ones anymore, Mum, I want the real ones. <laughs> like, okay, we've got to that point already, I thought that might still be a few years ago. 
One of the interesting little differences of how you can tell a croc from a frock, there's a couple of things. Like obviously, if it doesn't have the little crocodile emblem on it, you're dealing with a frock, not a croc. But there are these things called gibbets. And gibbets are these little things that you can stick into the holes of your crocs as a fashion accessory, as you know, an extension of your identity, or just because you like the little thing. So this is um, what all the cool kids are wearing these days. Amen. And the thing about your frocks, your fake crocs, is that the holes in them are a different size to your real crocs. And so if you go and buy some cool little gibbets to stick in them, the holes are too big in your frocks. So poor Conway, a couple of weeks ago in school holidays, he had his frocks, which we were stringing out the life expectancy of. And uh, Bron was in town with him, and they went to the, the croc shop in town, and he found this great little new gibbet that he was really proud of. And within half an hour, he'd lost it because it had fallen out because the hole in his frocks was bigger than a hole in the crocs. Disaster. He'd saved up his pocket money for it. There were a lot of tears. It was not good. So, again, it's interesting that for us at a parental level, we're going, okay, the kids are recognizing there's a difference between the real deal and a counterfeit, a, a fake, essentially, which is an interesting kind of thing. And I think Spiritually speaking, for all of us, God's heart is that we get to the point where we are so focused on Jesus and so in love with him and so grateful for all that he's done for us that we're easily able to recognize the difference between a crock and a frock, spiritually speaking. We know Jesus. We know how amazing he is. So if anything else kind of comes along, we're very able to kind of go, why would I want that when I have this? Why would I want what? ever someone else or some other ideology is offering when I have fullness already in Jesus. My heart and my prayer for all of us is that we keep growing in our faith and we keep growing to love Jesus more with each day that passes, more grateful for all that he's done for us. And as a consequence of that, our ability to recognize the difference between the real and the counterfeit grows naturally over time as we walk with him. So it sort of got me thinking around this question of like, well, what else in our culture that we are immersed in? What offers fullness or security or, or freedom or even identity in the culture that we live in? You know, one of the big ones is, is materialism. It's this idea that if I have more money or possessions, I will be satisfied and be able to face the future with confidence. That's just part of Western culture, a big part of it. But what I think we need to recognize is that we could live as followers of Jesus with essentially a Jesus plus materialism approach to the world and to our future and our security. See, Jesus' heart is that our security about the future doesn't rest upon what we possess, materially speaking, and it doesn't rest upon the state of our bank account, but that our security and our confidence and our hope about the future is in him. Not him plus some other stuff, but just in him and in who he is. So this can be a really subtle little thing in our culture that we can all at times get pulled into. It's just one little example. There's another one. I haven't actually got this up on the slide. Sorry, Rob. There's this idea that individual autonomy offers freedom. This is the idea that freedom, true freedom, is found in the rejection of every claim to mastery or control over my life. 
Interesting. That actually cuts against the grain of our Christian faith, where the heart of it is that we surrender all that we have to Jesus and we say, Lord, it's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. So it's not about me progressively gaining more mastery or control over my life, my future, my destiny, my decisions. It's about increasingly surrendering my whole life to Jesus. But again, because we live in a culture that emphasizes individual autonomy, we could easily end up where we worship Jesus on Sunday, but take control of our own life for the other six days of the week. That's not biblical Christianity. Jesus comes and makes claim on our whole life. And he says, I don't come to lay a burden on you. He clearly says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he offers this to all those who feel heavy laden or burdened by living life another way. Jesus says, come, true freedom is found in surrender to me, not in throwing off every control or restriction. It's in bowing the knee willingly to Jesus. This is where freedom is found. Another interesting idea that's circulating in our culture, workaholism. The idea that my financial security depends primarily on how hard I work. Or my identity depends on being useful and productive. That's really subtle. Like, how do you deal with the fact, like, if, if you're actually at rest, even over the holidays, maybe you went away and got away from the office, and maybe you found that really, really hard because there was this part of you that kind of feels like, oh, I feel like I should be doing something. And, hey, it's great to be passionate about what you do and have a drive to be productive, but if you can't actually relax at times without the feeling that I don't feel like my life really counts if I'm not doing things, What's your identity based on? Is it based on what you produced? Or is it based actually just on who God is and the fact that he says he loves you, not because of your usefulness to him, not because of what you produce, but just because you are his child. So again, we live in a culture that has different ideas. The idea of intentionally guarding rest, Sabbath rest in our lives is a really countercultural thing. I read this great quote a couple of weeks ago. I just, there's times where I read a book and I just, I don't know if Bron hears me, but sometimes I'm in the spare room reading a book and I just read it and go, yes! Not quite that loud, especially if the boys are asleep. But there's just moments where I go, that is profound. And I wish I'd come up with that, but I haven't. So I just share it with you. This is from a book called Biblical Critical Theory by a guy called Christopher Watkin. And he says this. He says, in today's always on, 24-7 world that never sleeps and rarely jumps off the hamster wheel of productivity long enough to dash to the shops and spend its accumulated wealth, following in God's footsteps by resting one day in seven is about as political as any time management strategy can get. Resting on the seventh day draws a line in the sand against the advance of modern workaholism and proclaims a stern thus far and no further to the unhealthy excess and superabundance of endless productivity gains. So God doesn't say to us, hey, just have a day off once a week. 
just, he doesn't say that so that we would be less productive. He doesn't say that to us so that we're just left there going, oh God, you've imposed this thing upon me. He establishes this principle and calls us to willingly align our lives with it because to do so ensures that we're living our lives aligned with the truth that my identity is not in what I do primarily. My security is not in what I produce primarily. My identity and my security are primarily in the fact that I'm a son or daughter of God saved by the blood of Jesus shed on Calvary for me. It's a countercultural discipline that is so strongly connected to our faith. So can I encourage you this year, don't get sucked in to the cycle of workaholism. Don't get sucked in with the feeling of like, I've got to embrace every opportunity that comes my way. I know this is normally my day off, but it's too good an opportunity to turn down and I'll just let things slide a bit. No, protect the time to intentionally stop, focus on the Lord, recognize that he is your provider, he is your savior, he is everything that you need and that your security and your identity is in him. Not in you, not in anyone else, it's in him. Theologian uh, Walter Brugman, he said this about the Sabbath as well, I love this quote. He said, Sabbath is resistance because it is a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. And because our lives are indeed not defined by these things, it's also a recalibration of our lives to reality. We recalibrate our lives to truth when we intentionally stop and rest and focus on Jesus. Protect that time in your world. One other idea, that's, uh, this is a kind of a church-specific one. It's, it's, it's called legalism. And it's the idea that I need to do certain things in order for God to love me and or to make sure of my salvation. This is a subtle wee idea. Oh yeah, I know I'm saved by grace, Jesus, but I know that I've stuffed up this week, so if I tithe a little bit more, if I come a little bit early to church, I might somehow, through what I do, get back in your good books. Not how Jesus works. Because it's works and it's not grace. Paul, in focusing on Jesus for the Colossians, in focusing on what Jesus has done, I think he's kind of speaking against this and reminding them quite intentionally again that it's not about what you do. Your status as a child of God is not dependent on your performance. It's based on what Jesus did for you. Think back to what we looked at last week in that powerful prayer where Paul is writing and reminding them that God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people. God has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his son. You have been redeemed. Your sins have been forgiven. And none of that is because of what we do. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. And it's simply saying, Jesus... I trust in you. I thank you that you died on the cross for me. I thank you that you rose from the grave on the third day and that you're alive and that my standing in the family of God is on the basis of your grace, your sacrifice, you, 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 not me, and what I do. Oh, I don't know where I stand with God. I, sometimes I don't feel very close to God. Feelings are notoriously unreliable to live your life on the basis of Come back to truth. 
Last couple of verses for this morning. This is verse 21 and 22 in Colossians 1. What does Paul say again? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So, oh, I'm not sure how I stand before God. I'm not sure how he thinks or feels when he looks at me. I don't base that on how you feel on any given day of the week, for goodness sake. Base it on scriptures like this. Because irrespective of how I feel, if I've put my trust in Jesus Christ, God's truth is that once I was alienated from God, but now I have been reconciled to God through Jesus, now, how does God see me? I'm holy in his sight. How does God see me? Without blemish and free from accusation. This is the truth. And I don't know about you, but I respond to that and go, oh yeah, God, I know that's what your word says, but I know me, and I know I'm not holy in your sight. I know that my life is not without blemish, and I know it'd be pretty easy to bring accusation against me for imperfection, because we're all imperfect. But God knows that. And the beauty of the gospel is that through Christ, God has made a way that doesn't depend on our performance. We don't work for our forgiveness. We don't work for our position in God's family. We receive it as a free gift. Protect your heart against that works-based legalistic thing creeping in there. Oh, I've had a terrible week, God, so I need to make it up to you. Now you just need to come boldly before the throne of grace and find mercy, uh, receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need again. You don't earn it, we don't earn it. We receive it. If you aren't sure where you stand with God, come back to the truth of what his word declares. Don't base it on your feelings, which are so unpredictable. Jesus is enough. It's not, oh yeah, Jesus, I put my trust in you as my Lord and Savior a few years ago, but I've been a bit of a naughty boy since, so I need to do a few things just to, no, no, that's Jesus plus my performance. And Paul in Colossians is saying, it's not Jesus plus anything, it's all Jesus. And that's where our freedom comes from. It's where our hope comes from. Praise God, it doesn't depend on our performance, how we stand with God. Otherwise, we're all lost. But in Christ, we are free. We are free.